Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. So today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, um, I have Lauren Cope with me, um, and she is the program coordinator for the University of Delaware's Botan- uh, Botanic Garden. So Lauren, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Danielle. I'm so happy to be here. I'm flattered and touched. I can't oh, I'm glad. Dig into our discussion. Yes. So, so, um, so tell me about your background. Sure. Um, so for the past 10 or 12 years or so that I've been working professionally in the career, um, I've worked with plants in some capacity throughout that time. And I feel really lucky to say that. Um, The field certainly does not lack in depth. Um, I received my undergraduate degree in agricultural science from Virginia Tech. Um, And I worked in agriculture for three or so years before I kind of took a bit of a turn, (laughs) 45 degree angle. to a job that I really loved as an estate gardener in Charlottesville, Virginia. And it was a job that I just really didn't know existed until I saw the posting for it. And it just turned out to be such an incredible job. And I, it was really formative for my career path and really shaped me a lot in that way. So I was managing the uh, aesthetic parts of the garden and formal gardens there. I was doing the floral design for the home. Um, and it was just a, a wonderful experience. I really loved working with plants in an, in an aesthetic environment mm-hmm. and um, really incredibly fulfilling on a personal level. I loved my coworkers and the work that I was doing, but I really wanted to be able to share that. And I would attend conferences up in the Philadelphia region a couple a couple times a year, typically. And every time I would visit, I saw amazing gardens. I spoke with great gardeners. And when I would attend the conferences, everyone in the room was just so engaged and the material was fascinating. And I knew that I really wanted to be in the Philadelphia region because there's just so many gardens. Um, There's about 40 public gardens within the region of greater Philadelphia, all the way up from New Jersey to the um, the Wilmington, Delaware region. Right. Um, So there's just a beautiful constellation of uh, horticulture in this area that really goes back and to early United States. Um, And so, yeah, I just really wanted to be closer to that network. And so I applied for the professional horticulture program at Longwood Gardens. And um, yeah, I feel 
made a great network uh, through that, which was wonderful and really helped solidify some gaps that I had in my own knowledge. And then also, um, you know, just kind of fill in uh, what I was missing. And yeah, as I mentioned, got connected with a lot of great people through that program as well. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think of like gardens and, and formal gardens in this area, definitely think of the DuPont to the, the, the um, Longwood and the winter tour. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and I think too, there's a, there's a, just a decent amount of gardens in general um, in this region and beyond that were started as private gardens and then were endowed into public landscapes. Cur- um, yeah, and converted. certainly the DuPonts are part of that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, that's that's very interesting. So did you work, like, what did you do within agriculture when you before you transitioned into the estate gardener? I worked with my sister. We had a farm. Um, at my parents' property, actually. And we did a bit of everything. We had a CSA. We sold at farmers markets to restaurants. Um, and that was a great community to be a part of as well. Um, the, yeah, there, I don't know. I, I think that's what I love so much about horticulture and agriculture in general is the community that it builds. Um, and it's not, I would say all the fields that I've been in with, with, uh, plants are very collaborative. Uh, it's not very cagey. I feel like everybody is very open to um, learning from each other. And yeah, so so agriculture, I, I found that to be um, at least uh, on a local level, really um, community driven as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense, especially like the the CSAs and, and farmers markets. Those are great, um, great places to connect with people. When I was first married uh, before I started working um, in my parents' company and, and, and started on this path. I um, worked at a, a farmer's market every Tuesday at, for a bakery oh, uh, nice. for like, you know, 12 hours a day. And I would, I would, um, <laughs> I would have like a two hour lunch in the middle of the day where I would do my shopping at the market. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, love being able to like trade with everyone at the end. Yes. And- yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a different experience and a different, a different pace than like just going to the grocery store. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what, um, what pulled you kind of into, to the, the, you know, understanding the history of, of, of horticulture and kind of that preservation of that history? Yeah. So I came to preservation, um, and historic gardens by way, um, of a garden called Wick House and Garden, um, and that is for people that aren't familiar with the Philadelphia area. Um, it's northwest of the city, and it looks pretty far out of the city proper. Um, but when you're there, it still very feels very much a part of the city. And um, it's a home that was held in singular family ownership for nine generations. And uh, yes, from 1690 uh, when it began as a flax farm um, in the Germantown neighborhood to um, its eventual transition into a nonprofit in the 1970s. And WIC, for better or worse, is such a secret, I feel like, of the Philadelphia region. There, if you are interested in history um, of really any type, I would say visit WIC. It is so fascinating. And I think what makes it such a rare and compelling site is the fact that it's a very cohesive collection. So there is, we have an object collection of um, 
around 10,000 objects. And then when you add historic um, correspondence to that, the number jumps up to around 100,000. And a lot of that is housed in the American Philosophical Society. And added to that, a, a lot of the object collection is housed inside of the home, which was never raised at any point. It's just kind of an amalgamation built on top of that original structure, um, which was in its current iteration, 1824, uh, William Strickland designed it. It was, this, uh, to my knowledge, his only domestic interior. So the home and collection together would be uh, pretty fascinating because the descendants were, um, they were Quaker and had a very, I would say like scientific eye towards mm. the natural world. And they were very curious souls. Um, and they, I, I guess what we would say they're like the modern, modern day hoarders. <laughs> so they were keeping, <laughs> they were, we had a whole room in the attic just full of chairs, just like 30, 50 chairs. Oh my and, goodness. At one point when we were um, going through a part of the collection, um, there was a box that was labeled pens that don't work. <laughs> so you just, goodness. Those you can throw away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can throw those away. So so because of that, though, we there's this unique um, snapshot into daily life um, that's so detailed in a way and really fascinating. And so, um, for example, for a horticulturist such as myself, we have the entire collection of this uh, horticultural publication called Meehan's Monthly. And um, Thomas Meehan was a local nurseryman in the Germantown area. He was um, responsible for um, helping save Bartram's garden after it had kind of started to fall into disrepair. And he was publishing this horticultural subscription magazine that you know, you I get so many magazines in the mail and just chuck them after I've read them and or give them to a friend. But we have the the entire collection of them and they're fabulous to go through with these gorgeous lithographs and poetry. And um, we have also in the collection um, like notes that were passed between the children in class and oh. just little doodles yeah. and notes. It's it's so interesting. And um, so on top of the object that this really uh, nuanced object collection that extends outdoors into landscape um, with several historic outbuildings and then the the kind of gem of the landscape being our historic rose garden which dates back to the early 1800s 1820s and that predates most rose gardens in this country by about a century um, most uh, most rose gardens that we think of the typical uh, type would be late 1800s, early 1900s. The Victorian, yeah. Right, right. Um, and we, the garden um, certainly has evolved and it, it, we can't exist in, in a stasis, you know, with, right. the, with gardens. Um, so there's certainly been additions made, but I think the most important part of Wick being that there were not very many subtractions that were made. Um, so we get a, a glimpse of a lot of these historic varieties that had really fallen out of favor and out of trade um, in, in other gardens in the region and beyond. Yeah, that's, that's, it's always, um, interesting to me when a property stays in a family for so long, because mm -hmm. usually the, that's what happens. They keep adding to rather than subtracting, they don't feel like they need to make it their own as much. Yeah. And, and the, one of the generation, um, so the drafter of the Rose Garden, Jane Bounhains, um, she, 
her and her husband, their last child was orphaned at a very young age. They had both passed away um, by the time their daughter who would inherit the house was only 10 years old. So um, she had a very sentimental view over her parents' garden and um, the home in general. And so she was really responsible for carrying that collection into um, the early 20th century. Um, and yeah, I think that's just kind of interesting to think of her mindset. And um, and there were a few different reasons, I imagine, for why she right. was so fastidious in keeping that collection. But um, but yeah, one of that, I would definitely think was sentimentalism. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, there was something else I was thinking about. That, that magazine collection is pretty amazing to me, too, because, you know, those things are you know, things that we, you know, we even a generation ago would hold on to because you don't know when you need to go back to research or, or look for something. And now everything's so easy to pull up online. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a big shift within our, our culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. So so tell me about the the work that you do now, the work you've done. Yeah, um, as it relates to preservation um, and historic gardens, WIC was kind of the one that um, I, I have the most, that touches on that the most. Uh, in my current role, I am more, I'm, so I'm doing more of the programming aspect of things. Um, so planning events and, um, and such for the public garden there that's attached to the university. So it's a different uh, focus entirely. Um, I suppose at its core, WIC, as well as uh, the Botanic Gardens at University of Delaware, both are primarily focused on educating, but in, in very different ways. Um, and I think that's an interesting point between gardens in general, um, just noting their purpose and their mission driven. So um, so more being more a collections-based garden, more display garden, like we think of Longwood Gardens where they're doing a lot of bedding and a lot of change out um, of their plant material. Wick being more of a historic garden where they're piecing together a story and a lineage there. Um, a garden like Mount Cuba, for example, also in our region that's focusing more on native plants. So um, I think that's kind of what I love so much about the region too, is that it's the rising tide floats all boats. Like no one is really just visiting one garden every single time. We're always, right. we're coming to gardens for different reasons and to explore different things um, in different settings and landscapes. So yeah, I, my shift to the Botanic Garden at, at Delaware um, is kind of just, um, it's certainly different from, from WIC, but I'm enjoying more of the collections aspect of it and a new community to be a part of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And I would think that by planning events and having people, you know, come in to see that's, that's also a way to educate about the different ways that gardens can be utilized. Absolutely. And I, I'm excited to have the side perk of getting to, um, you know, whenever we have a speaker come in, I get to sit in on those. Yes, that, um, that is, that is a, that is a big perk. <laughs> yes. So I do. I have been enjoying that for sure. Yeah. So, so um, are there any, I guess you've talked kind of about the different, the different uh, positions that you've had within, in, in the gardens and in, in the, in horticulture. Um, are there any like special projects or anything that you, that you, that's really special to you? Um, 
I think a lot of what excites me about horticulture is kind of, as, as you can probably tell, is just um, just the region and the the breadth of of horticulture that we have in that in this area and sharing that with people. Um, getting to be able to, so we have um, a group in the area, America's Garden Capital, that um, there's a small passport that they have printed that's really awesome. It has um, all the gardens in our region and formulated much like a passport would be, and you can go to each of the gardens and get them stamped. Um, and so I just love to, to make people aware of that and what's, what's in their backyards. And, um, that's a great and, way to get people to visit. I, I love that idea. Definitely. Yeah. It's a really, it's adorable. It's really well-made. Um, yeah. And I love, um, I love horticulture has brought me in touch with so many, uh, amazing people as well. Um, and so that's kind of what I was trying to step towards with um, my current role is the opportunity to, because I would be planning events and programming, have the opportunity to pull more people in um, and for my own curiosity and hope and the uh, communities as well, trying to pull together people that have um, a background and connect more people together. Oh, yeah. Horticulture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's I, that's one of the things that I love about planning educational programming too is is being able to expose different people to different ideas. That's one of the reasons I really enjoy doing the podcast too is I get to talk to a lot of different people that I wouldn't usually get to interact with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I I totally understand that that yeah, excitement. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So, and I think that's so important to have that cross collaboration and cross pollination between fields. Um and you know, working at a garden like Wick too, I, I came to that garden by way of horticulture, not by way of, of history and preservation. And right. so I learned a lot from my coworkers who were managing the object collection. And it was fascinating to be able to um, kind of discuss the two and the parallels and differences of managing each. Um, yeah, that, I, I found that to be a really fun fun aspect of the job as well. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could see that because, and that's, I think I, the more that I talk to people within the preservation field, they usually come into it accidentally. Not a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, graduate from high school thinking they want to preserve things. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear that, but a lot of, you know, there is a lot of on the job learning, you know, that, that, yeah. that is, that is valuable. And, and it's, it's, it's very important to pass that information along to, Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So I, one thing that I kind of struggled with a lot while giving tours is this need for, like, as I thought of this as you were mentioning that people, uh, you know, kind of fell into it in right. one way or another. And I had a lot of that imposter syndrome of being like, oh, am I qualified to tell this story? Because I'm not <laughs> I feel really that all the time it. too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that, that makes me feel better. I, I, think a lot about transparency in that storytelling and how easy it is to I, I there were a couple times when it would have been it would have been so easy to just say this is how this is the history of this uh rose just because there's several you know we have several supporting factors for right. that um but we don't know for sure and so I always felt that need to just be transparent about that and not yeah and I wonder if other people feel that too or if I just yeah, I know. yeah when I when I give up I when I talk to people I I try to you know give the best answer that I can 
But if mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent sure, and I'm taking an educated guess, I'll tell them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and and usually my educated guesses are pretty good. But you know, I I I don't want people to like. And I I think about that with just tour guides in general because mm-hmm. I feel like they could just make up stuff and people believe it. Oh yeah. Oh totally. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I do try to, I do try to be pretty transparent with, yeah, this is, you know, this is, this, this, you know, this is what I, this is what I think, but I, you know, this, and this is what we, we know about this. And, you know, I, and I think that's, I think people understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm more about probably being authentic than, um, than, you know, just pretending that I'm the expert. Um, but I do, I, I, um, my, my education, um, is in business. Mm -hmm. And when I started working with my parents, um, 22 years ago, I, um, started pretty much as a glorified secretary, went back to school. Cause I had, I had gone to culinary arts school right out of high school, but we were preserving buildings. So I started learning, you know, going to conferences, go, but my, so my degrees are not in preservation. And mm-hmm. so like somebody sent me like an ad for like the county was looking for somebody to do 106 reviews, which is like a, a, a federal requirement for um, certain projects with federal funding. And okay. I said, I said, I could do that. I, you know, I meet the requirements for education or re- meet the requirements for like experience and everything. I said, except I don't have the education they want. <laughs> and, you know, I, so I am not qualified and they couldn't believe it. They're like, oh, I can't believe they wouldn't let you do this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. At some point work experience has to outweigh, right? <laughs> right. I would think so. They only wanted two years of work experience, but. <laughs> oh boy. That's my favorite. <laughs> but you know, so, so in, in those moments, I definitely feel like, oh no, maybe I don't know what I'm, you know, like, but maybe, maybe they know something I don't. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, well, I, I always say about horticulture, um, that it's, I love that it's this appreciating skill. Um, and it, you will become, and I imagine preservation is, is a similar way. You're, you're becoming more valuable over time right. instead of um, obsolete with the times. You know, a lot of technology is, is by the time you learn it, there's something new right. happening. Right. And I love that there's so much to learn from, from people that, you know, even at the same, um, you know, experience level, but working in a different, right. Uh, different experience. Track, different, right. Yeah. Um, and I think that counts for so much. And, um, I've, I felt at least when I got my degree, I, I think it gave me a great basis and it was important um, in, in a lot of factors. But at the same time, I didn't feel necessarily prepared for agriculture proper <laughs> until um, I really got my, my experience with that. So in the field. So I, I do think it's so important to have both of that, both of those together in tandem. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um so do you have any tips for someone who is caring for creating a garden with native plants or in a historic garden design or both? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I would say first, I would say have, having a soft touch. Um, I think historic gardens really call for, um, you know, a careful consideration before really making these drastic changes and and they they're often needed um but at least i think it's true for most gardens you really need time spent observing um mm-hmm. it's 
because, because the garden will change so much in a given season and over a year, um, it's really important to just take stock of what's existing. And without the assumption that because something's there when you arrive doesn't mean it's of a certain age or legacy. Right. Uh, so when I started at WIC, WIC had been acting as a nonprofit for 50 years. Um, and so there's certainly changes that have been made and concessions that you often have to make in historic gardens right. Um, right. for accessibility and to make it a public space. You have to add bathrooms and you have to add a parking area or sidewalks. Um, so there's considerations on that point as well. Um, and yeah, I, um, I think too, it's important to decide a standard. Um, so interestingly, or something that I find interesting with living collections is deciding, is it the plant itself that's so important or is it where it is in the garden or its maturity and structure that it provides? Right. So while I was at WIC, we replaced the boxwood par parterres in the garden. Um, and of course that has to be done because we can't have a 200 year old plant boxwood uh, low-growing shrub that's 200 years old it's going to grow up eventually right. and be replacing and often too I mean even with historic cultivars of a lot of vegetables um they're these heirloom varieties we've now bred to over time have better resistance to diseases and pests right. so when you plant an heirloom plant it's it's is it more important that we keep that storyline and those genetic material or is it more important that we're preserving it um, against pests and diseases. So there's a trade-off and a balance between that. I never um, thought about that, but that makes sense because you need it to be able to grow and reproduce in order to continue on. So that, right. yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, one specific example uh, was a giant magnolia tree that we had in the backyard uh, or in the, in the rose garden at Wick in the um, backside of the house. And it was an incredibly important genetic material. Um, it was in the first shipment of plants that arrived to uh, the United States of that hybrid. And so it was declining. Well, it had fallen, I believe, in a storm. And then it had put up a little water sprout that was just so adorable. It was this miniature little tree. And I loved it so much. And um, that eventually caved and fell in a storm. And it we had propagated the tree so that we could have that genetic material preserved, but uh, the the presence of the tree was gone. And so um, when we did, when we were able to replant the magnolia tree, I didn't really want to plant it back in its original space because it was shading out the roses and it's right near the house and an obstacle. So right, it wasn't. They, no, when they thought about planting it 200 years ago, they didn't think yeah. about those things. <laughs> right, right. It looked a little different <laughs> in their time. Um, so it's choices like that that. I find a challenge, but also exciting to think about and just an interesting point of working. Yeah, I, I think that that's really um, practical and mm -hmm. and it, it allows that the genetics of that magnolia to continue on, but maybe not in, a, in the same exact area. And I think that that's that that is that is preservation. Yeah, right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, I, I found myself a lot thinking of, um, you know, the spirit of the place and have it, and thinking of um, what the previous owners or generations, what their 
overall mindset was in preserving and having the garden in general mm-hmm. um, and using that to guide decision makes decision making in the garden as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that and, that's, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good basis to, 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 to operate from. Yeah. I think every garden takes liberties with that to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and, and, and how, how well that mission was really laid out before it was turned into a nonprofit or public space, because sometimes you really don't have a guide map that's that strong and it's other gardens you do. So um, that can be limiting or, or freeing on that front. And, and I, another thing I think of often is at what point do we pull, at what point in time are we preserving for um, right. We could bring the garden back to its rudimentary herb garden when it was in the 1700s, or we we have it preserved now towards the 1820s design plan. And same with the home that was built in 18 or in its current iteration in the 1820s. Um, but within the bones of that is the log cabin from right. 100 years prior to that. So thinking about what point in time we choose to interpret to and what snapshot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find really fascinating. Yeah, that is, and that's that's a often a conversation within preservation of of buildings. Um, the National mm-hmm. Park Service calls it the period of significance. So if there was a historic yes. property or a historic event, you know that's what they're. But the the other thing is, and and I think this is probably similar to what you're talking about too. Is so let's just say it's a house. It's not you know it's not a national park site, and you know, the house has gone through, you know, two, 300 years of, of changes. Do mm-hmm. you respect those changes? Cause they're part of the history of the house, or do you take it back to, you know, it's original and that, I mean, it's, it's a philosophical debate. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And, and could also be said one thing, a similarity between that kind of object and, and living collection difference too is um, with invasive plants. So we had a couple plants in that are in the historic collection that of invasive plants. And so trying to figure out how we reckon with those. Um, and a lot of, of plants in our, in this region that are some of our worst weeds were first introduced as ornamental plants. And so um, that's a, a consideration as well for interpreting spaces and and what responsibly we can keep in the garden and what should right so that it doesn't spread to someplace else right yeah yeah Yeah, they're they're yeah and I think that's part of the the move towards native plants um Mm -hmm. is is to you know grow things that will um will will grow well in this climate or you know just in general in the area but and that that just made me think of my parents so my parents a few years ago moved to Arizona and uh-huh. they have a house now that they did not put the grass in but they have grass and mm-hmm. it, every time my mom talks about it it drives me crazy because I'm like there's not supposed to be grass in Arizona like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're you're, you're running out of water and you're watering your grass. Like, yeah. Ooh, yeah. It drives me crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It would drive me a little crazy too. <laughs> I mean, I, I love nicely mowed grass, but <laughs> in Arizona, that's a little wild. Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. <laughs> so um, so 
do you or do you see any common mistakes that that people make when caring for you know native plants or historic gardens? Yeah, I think I think more about just being responsible in what introductions we're making or changes that we're making. Um, and also, I think a challenge, as we mentioned with the invasive species is is controlling those in a way that um, that makes sense. And often that is that can be a really heated debate but right, my right. feeling on it is uh, often that's limited limited by labor and so when you're when you're trying to manage a large space that's has a lot of invasive species um trying to control that with manual methods sometimes that works absolutely great and sometimes you have to use in my opinion you do have to use chemicals judiciously to be able to manage right. that at points um and so I was very careful about decisions that I was making, um, especially in like near the historic uh, areas of the garden. I really didn't use chemicals really at all in that space. Um, but in other areas of the, the site um, and in other gardens I've worked in, sometimes it's like to get um, to a, a certain threshold where you can maintain the garden and start to go ahead and reestablish some of those native species into that design um, to get to that base benchmark level sometimes you have to use control methods that um that are chemical and i think that's just a part of the toolbox that we have so i think um i i feel like when in talking with people about um restoring their gardens or kind of um even reining them in to a certain extent feeling so overwhelmed by trying to do it all by um, manual methods and right. i think that i mean i love weeding i think it's so important to have a I think there's so much we can accomplish through manual weeding and um, just timing things correctly in the garden so that uh, we minimize weed control. But um, at the same time, I think thinking more holistically about the space and what you want to accomplish and in the end goal, how that's going to, to work is really important. Um, and I would say, yeah, just a, having a balance. Uh, it's a challenge to have the balance of working and preserving a space. Right. Um, because you still have to maintain it. Right, right. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's, yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's a struggle with, with everything, you know, everything needs to be maintained. Yes. <laughs> so and I um, think, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I, I, for better or worse, I do feel that making something beautiful incentivizes people to preserve it. <laughs> um, and so being able to get an, a space to, so I was really proud of being able to get um, the garden that I worked at to a space where I, we weren't apologizing after it all the time to say like, right. oh, sorry, this like looks really bad or it looks like it's not being care taken care of. or um, And not only it reflects bad on, on me, but also it feels like, well, why would people want to keep coming to the space if it doesn't look enjoyable I would they want to make a donation and have see it preserved so to sometimes to garner that you um you know have have to work towards making things more right. beautiful yeah no I I think that that's really true like once something is cared for and restored people really want to help keep it that way especially yeah, if they saw what it looked like previously absolutely 
So um, do you see from your vantage point, um, do you see any trends or challenges within, within uh, preservation? Preservation. I think what we had pointed to earlier about just transparency and in our storytelling, and and I often thinking at least on, um, yeah, just I would find myself often thinking about just the general personality of the people that lived in the home. Like I I really enjoyed seeing the all of the peripheral things that seem to point to a picture of who this person is. Right. But I haven't ever met this person. So I don't really know. And so I always thought that was something that's a major challenge to me and kind of dissecting some of, um, trying to piece apart the, uh, really depth of personhood and trying to put together a, a, a picture of someone's life and work, um, in a way that's immaculate, I think is kind of impossible. And so right. kind of yeah, you get glimpses, you get glimpses. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but I do, I do think that people are, are very similar. Um, even, you know, 200 years ago, the, the things that mm-hmm. motivate and, 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 um, uh, you know, make it make people do things are the same things that 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 do now I have yeah I have a book um it's like from the classifieds of um the Lancaster newspaper uh late 1700s early 1800s and it was like their Mm -hmm. Facebook you just had to go down to the newspaper office be fired up enough to go down to the newspaper office and and report whatever you wanted to about whoever you wanted to oh my gosh it's it's really funny that sounds so good (laughs) they they just had to be a little more committed than you know typing in their phone (laughs) yeah Yeah, oh and I'm sure people were committed oh yeah yeah there was one there was one that was like you know it was like runaway it was runaway wives a runaway slaves, um, something wives, and then like missing apprentices. And there was one that was like, oh if this God. man says that his apprentice um, uh, quit or ran away, he didn't. I was there when he said, get out of here. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm just like, oh my goodness. So yeah, they're, they're, I, people are the same. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> They got to stick their, yeah. 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 It, it just makes me giggle to think about it because we're, we're, um, I think just our technology has changed. Yeah. Different, different platform, but yeah. still yeah. the same stuff. Yeah. So is there anything that you, um, want to share that I didn't think to ask you before we wrap up? No, I, um, I really enjoyed our conversation and I, I'm so glad I was so glad when you contacted me just because I, as I mentioned, my coworkers and I would often talk about this, the difference between managing a living collection and an object, uh, architectural collection and kind of the Mm -hmm. differences and challenges between each. And, um, so I find that really, I feel really lucky and privileged to have a conversation with you about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come. If someone was interested in, uh, in, in learning more, uh, how could they, how could they contact you? Um, probably through my Instagram. Okay. Um, I'm sunk in the garden, uh, with under spaces between all of those words. Okay. 
We'll make sure that that's on our website uh, where the podcast is so that if somebody's listening and didn't get a chance to write that down, they can find it. Yeah. But otherwise, thank you so much for, for um, joining me today. I enjoyed our conversation also. Thank you, Danielle. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.